Hi everybody, welcome to another episode of Wildlife Cake and Cocktails. We've got a great show coming up for you today, but before that, um, we're just going to play you a little clip here. And uh, what you're about to hear is the last ever recorded audio of the Christmas Island Pipistrel. Um, it's a small bat that went to extinction um, very recently in our lifetime, in uh, yeah, uh, 2009, I believe. Um, and this is the last recorded audio um, and uh, we'll be talking about it very soon with Professor John Wynarski. All right, here it is, guys. All right, let's get to it. Returning to the show, we have Professor John Wynarski. He's an adjunct professorial uh, fellow at the Research Institute of Environment at Li and Livelihoods at the Charles Darwin University. He spent over 40 years in research and management of Australian wildlife, and more recently has been working for the Threatened Species Recovery Hub. Uh, he's uh, hugely into conservation ecology in Northern Australia, um, across a broad, broad range of taxa, of course, including birds, mammals, invertebrates, plants, and of course, reptiles. Um, he's also served on a range of national committees and groups in threatened species and biodiversity conservation uh, for his efforts uh, for which he's been awarded the 2001 Eureka Prize for Biodiversity Research, the Australian Natural History Medallion in 2011, and much more. He's joining us to discuss uh, the rather heavy topic of extinction in Australia and his new book, A Bat's End, The Christmas Island Pipistrel and Extinction in Australia, now available from CSIRO Publishing. John, thanks so much for joining us again. It's great to have you back on the show. Yeah, good, Yanni. Excellent, mate. And uh, where are we, uh, where are we uh, speaking to you uh, this time? In a cold spring morning in uh, Melbourne. So, look, I guess we should move on to uh, the uh, the main topic, the uh, Christmas Island Pipistrel. So, just uh, for you guys at home, by the way, I'm, uh, in honour of our subject, I'm drinking something called a Bats Brew. <laughs> so, two shots of rum, four of ginger ale, one of cranberry juice, and a splash of grenadine and blue curacao. It's also got like a... So, it's, it's like a dark drink, which, you know, it's we're, we're on a bit of a dark topic, but it's, it's kind of bitter and sweet as well. So, um, yeah, suitable. I've also got some uh, some nice little uh, chocolate cupcakes here with uh, with some little bat figurines on some edible <laughs> and and we we did a little calculation here. So one of one of these cupcakes here is um, fifty seven grams, and uh, the the bat that we're going to be talking about this now extinct bat um, weighed somewhere from three to four grams. So my cupcake here is about fifteen times fifteen to nineteen times the body weight of the bat, um, and this isn't a big cupcake, but the little uh, uh, bat figurine on top. Uh, does actually weigh uh, about uh, <laughs> about four grams, so the little bat figure on top of my cupcake that I'm going to eat. Mm. Yeah, the bat we're talking about, Yanni, it was amongst the very smallest of Australian bats, and it sort of weighed less than an empty uh, matchbox, and you could fit four or five in your hand at any one time. So yeah, it's a tiny anything, and your your cupcake might be very large. Yeah, no, <laughs> it's actually not. It's not that big, but. <laughs> But yeah, uh, still, you know, at least uh, fifteen, at least fifteen bats worth. <laughs> um, so look, let's discuss uh, that audio that we heard at the start. So obviously, you know, that uh, we can't a lot of the time hear bat echolocations or bat bat sounds. So that would have been um, something from, I guess, like an anabat detector or something like that. Is that correct? Yeah, correct. And it, it's quite haunting um, to realise that it's been taken so recently that technology you know, that it occurred in an era, era where we had advanced technology where we could listen to that call and that call was pretty well the last 
ever heard of that particular species. So that's really recent, this particular extinction. And, you know, it's, it's not as if we're dealing with fossils or bones or sort of old hairs found long ago in a distant museum. This is a really modern extinction. Yeah, right. And, and I understand it's it's also uh, the species itself was like fairly recently described. Like uh, Charles Andrews in 1900 described the Pipistrellus murrayi of the Pipistrellus genus, which there's only about 30 species of in Asia, Africa, Europe, and Australia. And as you mentioned, a tiny uh, bat taxon, very complex. And uh, I understand it's you know recently being reduced. It's not exactly you know monophyletic. Bit of a bit of a sort of bin taxon back in the day for things small bats that we weren't quite sure where they belonged. Yeah, sure. It's, it's had a taxonomically messy history, um, but the current opinion and opinion over the last couple of decades is solidly that this was a, an endemic species, a real species that occurred only on Christmas Island. And Christmas Island itself has had this really unusual history. It's been isolated or existed and isolated above um, uh, sea level for probably 10 million years or so. Um, but it was only um, colonised by humans around about the 1890s. And when people first arrived there, they said, you know, this is one of the, the last, the very few um, last large islands in the world which has been uh, inhabited by people. And strangely enough, as you mentioned, um, Charles Andrews, who described the species in 1900, when they opened up um, Christmas Island to uh, habitation by people, it was done explicitly to mine phosphate there. But one of the drivers of that phosphate mining uh, exploration and development was a scientist, a really renowned scientist, and he wanted very much to make a, a benchmark survey of the whole island of what plants and animals occurred there with the hope of being able to demonstrate what changed over the course of human over the course of its um, subsequent human development. And what did happen was that a hell of a lot of the species that occurred there originally that occurred nowhere else um, subsequently became extinct. Right. Was that was that JJ Lister, the namesake of the uh, Christmas Island uh, gecko? Uh, Lister wasn't the one who pioneered the development of the island. No, that was Sir John Murray. Oh, that's right, of course. Uh, the, the namesake of Pipistrellus murray the bat that we are currently talking about. Correct, yeah. Yeah, it's all um, highly incestuous. So. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, hard to keep your head around. But uh, you've done a fantastic job in this book of um, uh, kind of breaking down a lot of the uh, the history of that. We're, we'll, we'll get into that. We'll just uh, quickly wrap up a little bit on some of the basics of this uh, this little bat. So, as we mentioned, very small, about three to four grams, the weight of an empty matchbox. Is it the smallest in Australia? Uh, pretty well, you know, there's a few rivals for that honour um, and there's a bit of interest-specific variation in weight, but it's it's amongst the smallest, if not the smallest. Yeah, right. And uh, took these uh, regular two to three kilometre, uh, you know, nighttime hunting flights from roosts under exfoliating bark. It was a small brown furred bat with uh, hair tips, yellowish triangular ears with rounded tips. You know, not particularly, uh, I guess, unique or uh, amongst the bats, but I mean, I think that's kind of what we're going to be discussing, uh, the, the, what is unique in terms of biology and biodiversity. Either way, it was extinct by 2009, so its, unique, it's uniqueness will be, there's <laughs> uh, no more. Yeah, and, and th th it's partly symptomatic as well that um, we have much more awareness and care for large, conspicuous, iconic creatures like lions and pandas and tigers and the like and you know they're, they're very much the the, uh, the elite models of what we see for conservation and 
in fact, it's often the inconspicuous, uncharismatic, um, hidden species which are at most risk of extinction. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's always a lot more funding for uh, fuzzy cute uh, than there is for, you know, let's say conserving fungi. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, look, let's get on to this book, uh, A Bat's End, The Christmas Island Pipistrel and Extinction in Australia by John Wynarski, uh, now available from uh, CSIRO Publishing. Now, um, I read this thing pretty much start to finish. Um, it's an incredible narrative, uh, first of all, um, kind of approaching the extinction of the Pipistrellus murrayi, uh, almost like a an investigation uh, covering the history and the biogeography from the, you know, all the way through to the sort of Dutch and Portuguese explorations of the area in 1600s and then the landings by uh, Murray and Andrews and Lister's uh, first report of the bat um, and onto the uh, extinction timeline pretty much, including uh, in the late 90s, uh, and this was for me pretty um, harrowing, the uh, uh, Lindy Lumsden's uh, surveys of its ongoing decline through uh, 1988 to 1994 and uh, further on from there. So there's like a lot of personal accounts from the people involved as well. And, uh, I, you know, it was um, particularly devastating. Some of the personal accounts for, such as, uh, you know, from ecologists like David James and uh, and Lindy Lumsden. Yeah, it was, uh, you know, it's a fantastic, uh, fantastic book. Uh, what was the uh, uh, purpose for you behind writing this one? Yeah, look... Um, as you indicate, there's lots of components, dimensions to this story, and it fascinated me. Um, but also troubled me greatly, um, partly because it was so. I had a little bit of involvement with it through my role in a Commonwealth Advisory Committee, and it frustrated me that that committee and related Commonwealth processes weren't sufficient to stop prevent this extinction. Um, so I was trying to understand not only why the extinction happened, the ecological factors that caused the extinction, but also why the legal, the policy, the management shortcomings were, were such that they couldn't prevent extinction. You know, we all know that we're tr we try to prevent extinction and, and our fundamental environmental legislation in Australia has that as an objective and there are international objectives for preventing extinctions as well. Um, so I was trying to understand why those things failed, you know, and why they were allowed to fail. But as you recognise, it's also a very personal story as well. And I was trying to understand the different perspectives of the main players in this, this um, tragedy. And some of those main players, like Lindy Lumsden and David James, put their heart and soul into trying to protect this species. And the loss of that species under their care is a sort of scarring event in their lives. And, you know, it's, it's a great tragedy for them. They did everything that they could, um, and yet they failed. Whereas for others, such as many of the bureaucrats involved, it was nowhere near as searing. Um, it was instead maybe a minor irritant or an embarrassment. And just those different perspectives of the way we view nature and care for nature, to me, are really important because we do have to understand everybody's perspective. Absolutely. And look, it was, um, yeah, like I said, it was a bit of a bit of a tough read, uh, obviously, uh, through those uh, personal accounts for people who do put so much of their heart and soul into conservation only to be a lot of the time hamstrung for whatever reason but you know aside from that you know that investigation side you know the book kind of covers that i guess eulogy for the species and reflections on i guess some of the lessons and a bit of a meditation so you know i, I found that um incredible i basically read through the book uh, fairly fast and then i put it down and i cried a little bit <laughs> <laughs> i'm sorry about that but partly that's what i wanted to do to actually give this species some Ascending off, you know, a, you're right, a eulogy um, that we should mourn uh, the loss of species. That species 
had existed for tens of thousands, if not millions of years. And the factors, the way in which we changed its world ca caused um, its extinction. And we should regret that and we should try to learn from this experience to try to ensure that comparable extinctions don't occur again in the future. And we should have the capacity to make sure that they don't occur in the future. Well, absolutely. I think it's I think it's appropriate, and I think it's appropriate to feel a, a sense of loss of you know that level, um, particularly when you see some of the uh, challenges and uh, you know some of the I guess missed opportunities that there were. But look, let's um you know let's uh, stop uh, wallowing too much, <laughs> and uh, well I guess start wallowing some more. And let's uh, uh, you know if you don't mind, let's talk about the extinction of uh, this um, this species. So uh, you know in the book uh, there's one fantastic bit where you kind of break it down into how you could look at the causes of this this species, whether it's one main cause or a holistic, multiple causes, synergistic collapse, which generally seems to be the case a lot of the time for uh, for um, threatened species. But uh, uh, as I understand, you know, you've got a, quite a long history of degradation on the island for that phosphate mining, right? Yeah, quite. And um, there's two components, I guess, of trying to understand the extinction. One is the ecological and the other is the sort of policy um, drivers of the extinction and the ecological one um, it's really easy to blame it to try to find a single factor and to blame that single factor for the problem whereas uh, in this case there was decades of ecological degradation that had gone on beforehand uh, because of mining which had, has now um, largely uh, cleared about 25% of the island so that had cumulative and successive um, impacts and then partly because governments and the mining company um, saw the island largely as a quarry um, they had very little attempt to regulate the biosecurity of the island so while the mine while the, the phosphate was being regularly exported to Malaysia and Indonesia the boats coming back from those ports um, would tended not to be inspected by um, any quarantine service so there's a whole series of things which came in either deliberately or inadvertently on those boats. So that um, a range of introduced species also then helped degrade the environment of the island. And then there were sort of additional ecological problems. And I was trying to figure out which one of those was the, the main driver of the actual extinction, of the, the serious decline at the end and then the extinction. And part of the issue there was that although people were desperately trying to find the cause um, in the few years leading up to the extinction, they didn't actually nail it at the time. So without being aware or clear about what the cause of that, the ultimate cause of the extinction was, it was really hard for managers then to say, oh, yeah, okay, you know, what do we do? Do we uh, clean up the, the, the uh, ants? Do we uh, stop the mining? Do we, you know, uh, clean up the, the pussycats around the island? And without that direct direction, it was the managers really were ineffective um, so that although quite a bit of money was spent on trying to um, control, for example, the crazy ants which had invaded the islands, that control effort was entirely futile um, in terms of protecting the bat. Yeah, right. And uh, as I understand, the one uh, invasive species that did have a sort of good match towards, I guess, the timeline and the spatial decline across the island of the bat was the wolf snake, Lycodon uh, capucinus. Absolutely. And, you know, in retrospect, it seems pretty clear that that was the problem. Um, the bats were really common up until the 1980s and then declined really rapidly. The snake was first seen on the island in the 1980s. The snake then expanded its range and abundance from um, its, the port on the island's north coast 
all the way across the island gradually over about two decades. And over the same time, the bat declined from in a, a spatially successive way from the port area to the west to the west of the island, where the snake arrived last. So yeah, there's a, quite a neat temporal and spatial synchrony between the snake's arrival and expansion through the island and the bat's decline and retreat across the island. There, there was no yeah. smoking gun though. There was never a case of a, a bat being found inside any sort of dissected snake or any anybody observing the snake actually eating the bat. Uh, but the uh, inference is pretty clear that, um, that that was the problem, the main problem. Or there's the uh, alternative answer, answer that you already alluded to, that you know, you've got the uh, habitat loss through mining in the 70s and 80s, mid-80s you introduce some invasive species, 1988 there's a typhoon that destroys a lot of the trees on the island, you've got the yellow crazy ant through the 80s forming super colonies throughout 95 to 2002, increased predation by giant centipedes and rats and the tree collapse and more in a remote island limited tiny 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 bat with a slow reproductive rate of like one per year and then you on top of that you add uh, a few uh, incidents of mismanagement underfunding and the speed of the bureaucratical process as well as just uh i guess our valuation of threatened species programs and how we how we approach conservation yeah look like what you're drinking it was a vicious cocktail of factors i think (laughs) (laughs) um oh and it's probably quite typical of threatened species they're affected by many particular threats or factors and they might be able to survive one or more of those factors but not the whole range of um, problems that have been thrown at them um, in this case, also, it's symptomatic of um, island conservation generally. Islands have a really disproportionately high number of the world's threatened species, um, and they also have a really disproportionately high number of extinctions. And that's largely because, inevitably, if species are restricted to islands, they have relatively small population sizes. They typically have small reproductive rates, so they can't respond rapidly um, to any threat. Um, and they're often really naive to predators um, because there's never been predators in that environment. You know, they don't have any protection against uh, new diseases that might come to the island as well. So if we want to look after the world's biodiversity, this case is symptomatic. Um, We do have to value our islands better than what we're doing at the moment and have to ensure that those values are well maintained through adequate biosecurity arrangements. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, the uh, I, I guess the interesting thing here was uh, this is all understood. Um, the decline in the bat had been observed and was well documented by the time that any kind of serious action was put into place to try to you know catch and put together a breeding colony or or anything like that. Yeah, look, it was almost as if those responsible had become complacent that you know we've got. Uh, good environmental legislation in Australia compared to many other areas. We've got sort of protected, you know, we list species as threatened and then do various recovery plan, planning and the like for them. Um, but the complacency was such that it almost came as a shock ultimately to those in charge that this species had the temerity to go extinct. You know, it, it, it had been protected under sort of our threatened species legislation and that most people in charge would probably have thought that was sufficient um, it, this was a shock to the system. It was the first irredeemable failure of the Environmental Protection and Biodiversity Conservation Act in Australia. You know, um, it is, we can't recover this species. The, the legislation failed us, the management failed us, and the policy failed us. 
and we do have to learn from that. Well, one of the things that really comes through clear, clearly is, uh, I guess, the issue of bureaucratic speed and the timeline to extinction, particularly towards the end. Uh, you, not just the pipistrel, you make a great example in there as well with the uh, Christmas Island forest skink. You know, it, it was th- uh, listed as threatened in 2014, four years after it went extinct in the wild and only four months before the f- death of the final individual, Gump, uh, in captivity. Yeah, absolutely. Um, our bureaucratic process is simply not capable of keeping up with extinction event, uh, with decline and extinction in our biodiversity. It can happen remarkably quickly. Species can go from ostensibly secure to um, extinct over the pace of the, over the period of a decade or so. And the current process we have for listing species is, bureau- is formal, bureaucratic, understandably so, but it's really slow. And there's a uh, problem ensuring that um, less well-known species, less charismatic species are actually listed. And there's also a problem with many of the recovery plans that we have once a species is listed. Um, they're not funded necessarily, and sometimes they're ineffective and not reviewed. So it, what the, the administration bureaucratic processes simply wouldn't, couldn't keep up in, in this situation um, to an urgent uh, conservation problem. And the urgency of the problem, you know, although the people on the ground on Christmas Island were trying desperately to make people aware of the urgency of the problem and the imminence of the extinction risk, you know, there was almost um, people in responsible positions were almost in a soundproof room. They just weren't getting that message that something had to be done urgently. Yeah, right. And, uh, you know, you mentioned as well, um, you know, the management plans and I guess uh, getting that um, urgency in in future or you know future management plans that um not a lot of them have some kind of threshold response in in them for the population size right so if there might be monitoring that's uh mandated but there's no response once the population drops or starts declining at a certain rate or drops to a certain level which might be super super important yeah look the uh the cliche here is the species was monitored to extinction um it had one of the best monitoring programs that exists in Australia, existed in Australia, you know, almost every individual had been, was either uh, caught or monitored every couple of years. And the slope of the monitoring program was great. It showed a, uh, a really clear, consistent decline. And from about five years before its extinction, if you joined the dots of that uh, monitoring program, you could predict that the extinction would happen in five years, which it did. The problem with the monitoring program, of course, was that it wasn't linked to any trigger points, thresholds, that if it declines by X percent over, you know, in this, over a three-year period or um, if its population had become 30% of what it was 10 years ago, then we need to do these remedial actions or else. Um, so great monitoring program, um, well monitored, but it missed a vital ingredient, that connection to management response emergency management response in this case. And I I think actually that's not atypical of um, many monitoring programs in Australia. As you're probably aware, uh, there's a dearth of monitoring programs for threatened species across Australia, many about threatened species. We really don't know how they're trending or what the trajectories are. And not only that, most monitoring programs aren't structured in such a way that if there is these um, catastrophic declines or ongoing consistent declines, what is the emergency response? Where, when do we take it and what do we do? 
Yeah, totally. Uh, and look, as you, you mentioned as well, you know, uh, with these thresh, threshold responses, you know, or, or the you know monitoring programmed uh, programs, you know, that that all requires funding. And uh, you know, it's it's understood that you know money's not, you know, money doesn't grow on trees. It all has to come from somewhere. But that kind of brings up a bit of the uh, I guess moral and ethical questions behind this. How much do we actually uh, care about species? What is the value of of biodiversity? Yeah, look, um, again, a couple of responses to that one. We spend probably about uh, 20 to uh, 10 to 30 percent thereabouts on threatened species in Australia, as do the Americans with fewer threatened species per year. Um, and we know that the American situation, they're funding sufficiently to recover many of their threatened species, whereas in Australia that's not the case. So I suspect we're underspending by probably about fivefold from what we need to spend on Australia in terms of recovering threatened species. So that's one problem. Um, the second problem is about valuing threatened species. My belief, abiding passion, is that we're on this world only for a brief time and we have a responsibility, an obligation to look after the world that we've inherited and we should pass to our descendants a world that's as beautiful, as, as healthy and as diverse as that which we've inherited. It's a moral obligation. And strangely enough, that's actually written into the Environmental Protection Biodiversity Conservation Act, our environmental legislation. Um, and to lose species on our watch is subverting um, the legacy that we pass on. And we shouldn't be doing that. You know, we've got the capability of ensuring that all species persist, especially in a country as rich and affluent and wonderfully natural as Australia. Um, so all species are valuable, um, but some species obviously have more value to us than others. And there's a tendency or a perception or a, a, um, a weakness of us according more value and putting more conservation effort into those charismatic and helpful, useful species than to the ones which are less charismatic and not immediately useful to us. So I don't think we should fall into that trap. I think all species have a right to exist and we have an obligation to ensure that we don't impinge on that right. Well, yeah, look, allowing any one species to go extinct and then, you know, not allowing future generations to experience that part of uh, the living uh, world, the living universe is uh, a, little bit, a little bit perverse. Yes, but part of the issue there is that there's a tendency or a, uh, an argument in conservation about ecosystem services um, that we should value nature simply in terms of the economic benefit it provides to us. And that's, there's some merit in part of that argument, but um, it does mean that we discount those species which are not of value to us or even maybe harm, harmful to us. And I think that's a really selfish narrative. Um, we should be capable of recognising the rights of even those species which are least charismatic, least useful, um, but still have existed for tens of thousands of years and have a right to exist. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we, um, it would be a bit um, arrogant of us to try to, I guess, make that choice for other species. And well, look, one of the things that came through in the book as well was uh, this... Uh, uh, idea at the time, I guess, uh, of protecting landscapes rather than focusing so hard on protecting individual species. Yeah, look, the Pipistrels was unlucky in its timing. Um, it was a period in the, uh, around about the decade of 2000, uh, when there was a push 
by um, governments or the environment departments within governments and by many conservation biologists about triage and also about landscape scale um, uh, conservation that we're the argument goes that we're wasting our time dealing with individual threatened species on a case-by-case basis and that we should be more strategic about it, um, invest only in those species which are of value or are most savable or most cost-effective to try to save. And we should also be looking at um, more broadly across the landscape, trying to shore up the healthy landscapes and um, not worry about the individual components of species within them. And that was an argument argument that was put quite forcefully by a range of ecologists in Australia um, and I think the pipistrelle suffered because governments listened to that argument. They discontinued funding for things like the Threatened Species Network which was a really effective mechanism for investment in threatened species um, at conservation and involvement by the community in that conservation and the whole range of threatened species management actions that were happening at the time were discontinued. And the pipistrelle's timing was really bad. It happened in the middle of that process. Yeah, I, I think it's a you know it's a it's a weird sort of uh, argument as well to sort of focus less on individual species and go up to landscapes. Uh, you know, it seems like I guess on a financial basis to focus up on the landscape and you know to get the most effort out of your money. Of course, that seems to be the natural way to go, but that's. That's really just saying that, hey, we're only going to spend this amount of money. Yeah, quite. And that should never be an either-or argument as well. And, you know, it's, it's, the triage argument um, takes its uh, example from a health system, in fact, a, 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 um, a battlefield health system. And, in fact, um, the health system is actually quite relevant as a parallel for conservation because... In health, you know, you do your, your fitness and your exercise and healthy activities, which is essentially about comparable to looking after healthy landscapes. Um, you do regular checkup and screening, so that which is equivalent yeah, to... Yeah, pre- preventative medicine. Yeah, which is equivalent to monitoring in threatened species. But then there's also got to be a place for the emergency care ward where you do invest in those things which, are, if you don't invest in them, will disappear rapidly and or be, die or become extinct. So, you know, there's a whole range of parallels in the health system which apply beautifully to conservation. And the idea that we'd only do one part of that health system is just an anathema and stupid. Yeah, again, and it, and it does seem to come back to that issue of value. Uh, and, like, as you said, I think we're one of the lowest spenders in uh, in conservation funding. I think we're, uh, uh, as of 2013, we're in the bottom 40 globally for conservation funding. And uh, that's down by about a third uh, as of 2017, that went down by about a third. Yeah, I think we're at about Nicaraguan level. You know, no offence to Nicaragua, you know. It's, it's a... No, of course, of course. Um, but, I mean, we pride ourselves on our natural values and biodiversity in Australia being such a unique landscape with, you know, Gondwanan species and, and uh, you know, we have a huge amount of ecotourism and we really pride ourselves on uh, ecosystem environment, being outdoors, and our natural values, and yet we don't actually give them the same monetary funding value. The dollar value is not spent on them the same way as we like to pretend that we value it. And uh, then on top of that, we like to ex- over-exploit everything as well. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, and the consequences of that are really evident. Um, we've lost three vertebrate species in the last 10 years. No other country in the world's done that. 
We've lost 32 mammal species over the last 200 years. No other country comes within a bull's roar of that level. Because of the way we've changed the environments in Australia and because we're not caring enough and investing enough about the repair or recovery of the damage we've done, we are losing more species than anywhere else in the world. And that will continue and escalate in the future. So I guess... Um what do we what, what do we learn from this book in terms of management? Greater funding, earlier research into uh, species threats, uh, thresholds in the management plans, greater advocacy for less aesthetic species. Absolutely, and there's many more. You know, it's actually striking how many different lessons come from this case. Um, one is that the importance of caring for nature and actually trying to fight for the existence of other species that that's the paramount lesson, I think. But there's also, in the case of the decline of biodiversity on Christmas Island, there's a whole series of consecutive small interim, uh, interim steps that were problematic. Um, so even small decisions taken now will have reverberations and repercussions in the future. There's not necessarily one uh, landmark decision which either causes or doesn't cause or prevents extinction. It's a series of incremental steps that lead up to that. So, for example, in Queensland, um, as you're aware, the black-throated finch is declining rapidly and the whole series of decisions over the last 20 years have eaten, allowed um, the erosion of some of its habitat through mining and clearing and the rest. Each one of those decisions by itself doesn't cause extinction or contributes necessarily significantly to, to extinction but cumulatively, progressively, collectively, those small decisions that have been made by environmental departments and governments ultimately mean that the risk of extinction is greater and ultimately um, too much that the species will become extinct because of those small decisions. Yeah, right. Do you, do you, do you blame the straw that breaks the camel's back and, and uh, sends the species extinct, or do you have to look at, look at the overall problem of uh, how, how the whole situation is managed? Yeah, and very rarely there's a single straw that, that causes the extinction. Um, it's a series of events leading up to it. But, but uh, there are more lessons as well. You know, we sh do need to value our biodiversity-rich islands much more than what we're doing um, because they are so... They're at the fulcrum of the extinction problem. Yeah, absolutely. And, we, uh, and it does go through a lot of those other, um, uh, you know, uh, species at risk on, um, on Christmas Island. You know, the, the Christmas Island blue-tailed skink, listers, gecko, which are uh, now pretty much only in captivity. But I understand those captive breeding programs are, uh, are doing okay these days for those two species at least. Yeah, they're um, uh, increasing, but they're bumping up now against the capacity levels that, that there's not sufficient um, infrastructure in place um, to keep them expanding. So what do you then do with a, a captive bred population? Well, I understand the uh, the wild releases are still a bit problematic. Uh, not necessarily. There's one actually happening uh, round about now, um, which hopefully um, will be successful, or at least on a small scale. So, yes, and part of the issue there, again, is that the captive breeding program for those two Christmas Island uh, species, which became extinct in the wild shortly after the pipistrelle, it was partly because of regrets, I guess, about the remorse about the pipistrelle extinction that those captive breeding populations um, were established. You know, so that we have learnt some lessons, and there is a bit of a legacy from the pipistrelle even on Christmas Island. Well, that's good. I mean, uh, hopefully, it gets a bit more fire behind conservation of island species. I mean, we um, we have so many amazing island species all around Australia that you know, each one of them really is a unique ecosystem to some extent. 
Oh, absolutely. They're separate universes um, and they're, you know, islands are just magnificent places and for biologists and conservationists, they're the ultimate um, exciting places in the world, yeah. Well, look, uh, let's, uh, let's uh, quickly talk about Christmas Island today. Um, how, are, uh, how are things faring? I understand there's still obviously a bunch of threats there from invasive species such as the yellow crazy ant and the wolf snake and the, and the giant centipede. Yeah, yeah, they're formidable problems. Um, there's some success occurred over the last five years in reducing the number of feral cats, and the cats were preying on many of the uh, ground-nesting seabirds, so that's really important. That's a, a success, a progress. Um, the Christmas Island flying fox, which was the only one of the five endemic mammal species that uh, didn't go extinct, um, it seems to be stable now, so that's promising. Uh, there's some success uh, with ongoing success with dealing with crazy ants, although that's going to be a long-term problem. Yeah, I guess we're going to wrap it up there, Professor Wynowski. Thank you so much for talking to us. This has been absolutely awesome, and thank you for the book. Uh, now available at CSIRO Publishing. Uh, you can check it out at CSIRO Publishing on Twitter and Facebook, or just Google A Bat's End, The Christmas Island Pipistrel and Extinction in Australia. You can also check out more on Christmas Island uh, in episode 19 of Wildlife Cake and Cocktails uh, with Hamish and Jason on Christmas Island talking about reptiles. Um, no worries. Thanks again, John. Uh, this has been an absolute pleasure. Um, <laughs> Great, Yanni. Lovely talking to you. Take care. No worries, mate. I'm gonna I'm gonna finish uh, another one of these cocktails and uh, keep flicking through this book. <laughs> <laughs> um, thanks to our, thanks to everybody listening at home. You can stay up to date with all the uh, latest on wildlife cake and cocktails on uh, at wildlife cake and cocktails on Facebook or at WCC underscore podcast on Twitter. We'll be back with you uh, very shortly with uh, plenty more. Cheers, guys. 